Ladies and gentlemen, good morning and um, welcome to this our latest edition of the podcast. Um, this week, we've got a special guest in, Katie Ford, who is another vet, just like Paul, although she's a vet in terms of animals, not in terms of war zones, just to make that clear, because otherwise this will sound very weird indeed. And in fact, one of the things we're going to talk about today seems entirely appropriate with the launch of the interview that's come out last night with Megan and Harry. We're going to probably talk about imposter syndrome a little bit uh, at some point today, which which I know with Katie and Paul is as far as we're going to get into that topic. So, uh, Paul, Katie, welcome. Hello. Hello, hello. Um, I'll, I'll start off, Katie. Um, we're both vets. Um, we've uh, we've known of each other for, for quite some time now, I think. We've got a huge number of friends in common. Um, but uh, I just thought I'd start off with what's quite interesting uh, and perhaps uh, really places us in this last 12 months is um, uh, 12 months ago, I'd never met you. We'd never actually spoken on the phone or anything like that. We knew each other, of each other, but I'd never actually had a conversation. And now, certainly weekly, at least, uh, maybe maybe a couple of times a week, we have a phone call, we have a chat, we have an email conversation, we have a Zoom call, we have a, a something going on. So over the last 12 months, we've gone from nothing to quite regular communication. But, and I suppose this is, uh, this is the crux of it. We've never actually met in person. Everything we've done, our, I'd like to say friendship, uh, our, our relationship, let's, let's, let's not let Simon and uh, Naomi hear that, uh, our relationship. Well, oh, oh, you seem to have quite a lot of online relationships <laughs> with women. I just something, I've, just something I've noticed. Delete my history. Nothing, nothing happened. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so, but, but our entire relationship, which seems, you know, only a few years ago would seem something from science fiction, is completely uh, based online. I, I, I just think that's that's certainly you know something of the time, really, isn't it? And it's incredible and testament to how much can actually be done online, isn't it, Paul? Because we were saying just before we jumped on this that it's so strange that I think of you as as a very good friend, and I forget when you have that moment of realization of we haven't actually ever met in real life, but that connection's still there, and I think that really is good evidence towards how powerful online platforms can actually be informing those bonds we think that it's only possible in real life but no it's it's absolutely not just we've got so much that we can gain online and we were saying before we think this probably would have been an inevitability eventually well even from a case even from a business development point of view paul and i and we were saying a bit earlier on you know we've got two new clients service.com and garner aerospace that we're going to deliver uh, some motivational stuff and some leadership stuff too this week and I've I've never met any of them um, which for us is a revelation because our thing was always kind of old-fashioned networking go meet people have lunch or drink with somebody or, or do what you do and actually both of those two companies that the relationship has been entirely formed electronically and actually just to pick up on what you're saying Kate as well I think what's really really cool about that is arguably we've had more meetings and got the got the events more refined because we've only ever communicated via Zoom or a mobile phone, we're super comfortable doing that now. Mm. So actually those courses and those events that we've put together have been really well refined because we've ironically probably had more communication than have we been trying to get face to face. I don't know, it's just interesting. Definitely. And like you say, I think this was something that was going to happen, but it probably would have taken five, 10 years to get people to, to realize the power of using zoom using blue jeans using google meet whichever platform that you want to use 
I'm realizing the power. You must be a Zoom, Katie. Sorry. Mainly, I tell you that's definitely our favorite one as well. But um, my partner and I, over lockdown, actually launched a, a virtual event business, and it's amazing that yeah, we've never met any of those clients in real life yet. We've been a part of some of their triumphs. We've been part of seeing their end of year reviews. We've seen them bring people together across the globe that maybe might not even have been possible because of the expenses of getting people there and the friendships like Paul and I that have been forged through a screen that if you'd said 18 months back, oh, could you actually get good friends with someone online? It would sound like some sort of dodgy online relationship that everyone go, no, it's not possible. You've got to know people in real life. <laughs> yes, good. I've just dodged that one. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> but and, but and quite interestingly as well, uh, we've been we Tim and I do quite a lot of uh, leadership talks and training and delivery to people who are perhaps new into into a leadership role. And uh, a lot of them, because the churn is still happening, you know, people are still moving jobs, joining co uh, companies and leaving companies. We've now got, you know, a, a, a chunk of leaders out there who are leading people that they've never met and. You know, I, I do feel a little bit sorry for them. Maybe it's my age. Uh, maybe it's the generation I am. I still feel that leadership is easier face to face when I'm in a room with someone. I can look them in the eye and have a chat. Uh, but I suppose, thank God it happens now and not five years ago, because trying to lead over a phone call would be horrendous. At least trying to lead over uh, Zoom or blue jeans, etc., is, is doable. Um, but there is still a little there is still something in, in me that says, it's going to be good to get back to doing some of that face to face and some of that. I, I still think, Paul, I agree with you. I still think, and, and perhaps it leads on quite nicely to talk about imposter syndrome, Katie. Mm. But for me, one of the biggest problems is that kind of post Zoom lull. And, you know, those of you that are partial to your glass of wine, the Irish often refer to it as the fears, you know, which is the morning after, isn't it? It's the what did I get up to yesterday or do yesterday that I kind of did I say that or was that OK or not OK? And, and for me, I definitely see more people with that via electronic means so people kind of put the zoom call down and they're like oh was that okay was this okay should i have said that so so arguably that kind of imposter moment because you're not getting the feedback and you're not getting the kind of confirmations if you like through being around people i wonder whether that actually then gets the kind of fears if you like almost gets worse because you are missing that interaction i don't know it's interesting Actually, I mean, one of the things that we've always got to remember is there's so much communication that's non-verbal, as you too well know, and the ability to take that in through a screen versus real life is always going to be less so. But I think with using online modalities, what we've got to focus on is what we can do rather than what we can't do. And like you quite rightly said in one of the previous episodes, Tim, I think just remembering that we're humans and having that connection as much as we can do via platforms like this is really important. Like having the chit chat before and afterwards and remembering that it's a bit like social media. And again, this is quite a, a big fuel in the fire for imposter syndrome as well Is we get highlights reel. And sometimes on Zoom, we see just the speech and just them being out there and looking really confident. And we don't see the accessories around that that maybe we'd see in real life that, oh, I'm a little bit nervous to go and do this before. You just see them show up, which then can sometimes foster these false illusions that that's what they're like. Oh, my goodness, they're so brilliant at presenting. And I didn't do that. And I stumbled over a word. And goodness me. But you might have seen that if you just fostered those bits before and afterwards as well. Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah. And um, I suppose 
again, going back, you know, we're both vets, uh, both vet me surgeons, both spent a good proportion of our early career being vets. I was a, not quite clever enough to be a small animal vet. I was a farm vet. Uh, <laughs> you were smally there with, uh, uh, with the cats and dogs. Um, but again, a bit like me, you've diversified away from sort of general practice um, and uh, I suppose the sort of the USP, the uh, the thing that certainly those vets who are listening will, will know you most for is that imposter syndrome, really breaking breaking down those barriers and getting people in our in our veterinary profession to understand it. And I suspect pretty much everybody, certainly everyone who's uh, who's in the professional sphere, will have had that imposter syndrome, worry, fear, gremlin sitting on their shoulder. And so it's not a veterinary specific um, issue, but certainly uh, that's an area that you've you've grown up. Uh, and uh, and developed in an area that perhaps we as vets hadn't really spoken about before. Absolutely. And I've not got time to go fully into my own experience with imposter syndrome, but that was really the driver behind me getting out there and opening the conversations, because similar to what we've just spoken about, that illusion of nobody actually speaking on a real level of what was going on between their ears, what their doubts, what their worries were, fed into that because I'd see people that got the extra certifications and extra qualifications looking like you know the the swan gliding across the lake everything looks brilliant and like it's all going well and you don't see their legs going 10 to the dozen and thinking when I get there to what they're doing then I'll feel confident because they look confident and if somebody at that point has said you know Sometimes I get like a little bit of an imposter gremlin jumping for me. But at that point, I realize I don't have to believe it. And these are the things that can help me through it a little bit. Then that would have massively helped me when it was just at the point of being imposter syndrome right at the beginning. And that's really why my passion lies so much in this, just to open that up. What we externalize, we minimize a lot of the time. And we realize, you know what, regardless of what stage of our career we're at, Imposter syndrome isn't a fault or a big label that we hold and go, oh my goodness, I've been diagnosed with imposter syndrome. It's an experience that we'll go through and just trying to help support people. Yeah, yeah, no, I, could, I mean, I literally couldn't agree with you more, actually. It was Fall and I were talking earlier. It's quite funny when we have a tendency because, you know, when, when you do a bit of afternoon speaking or kind of live uh, keynote speaking type stuff, you, you inevitably end up talking about the kind of cool stuff that you've done with the military or the dangerous places you've been with the military or, or whatever that might be. In actual fact, for me, the biggest impact on my life without question, and I know Paul had a similar experience actually, was I went to Sandhurst. So I went to Royal Military Academy Sandhurst at 19. So I effectively did my A-levels, had, had the summer off and started at Sandhurst in the January, I think, uh, 95, something like that, went straight to Sandhurst. 19 years old. I had no idea what was going on. Of course, I thought I was older because you've just finished school. I mean, I always laugh. There's that brilliant moment, isn't there, when the kids wear the levers sweatshirts and there's a brilliant moment they suddenly realize that makes them young not old you know and and, and actually that was definitely me and then arguably worse because you go through Sandhurst and do you know what some of the guys I was at Sandhurst with were, were pretty unkind actually but I was young I was young and naive and I, I get that and the consequences of leading in that environment are obviously reasonably serious so you sort of think oh well they're right they're right I should just take this on the chin but then actually taking over as a platoon commander as I was age 19, in command of 37 soldiers, of which I was the youngest wow. by a mile. And actually, all I thought I had to do was prove to them everything. You know, in my head, I've got to be better, faster, stronger. And of course, I wasn't. I couldn't be in any way, shape or form. Then you start to flounder. Then you get these great soldiers around you. They're all tough guys, certainly guys with the infantry. So certainly all tough, you know, tough guys from that point of view. And actually, get, the whole situation gets worse and worse and worse. And in fact, 
you know, in reality, as you get a bit older and you realise that those guys didn't expect me to be the best at anything in particular, they really just wanted you to learn. But nobody tells you that. Uh, and for me, the biggest learning experience I ever got from the military was that first kind of, I don't know, what, 18 months or so where, you know, I was 19 years old and, and kind of thought you had to be the best at everything and you were being judged and worked about everything. Was it, in actual fact, it's not, it's not the reality. And, you know, that kind of lesson has stayed with me a, a long time, I think. And that's so powerful, honestly, Tim, because I think there's parallels that run from that in all industries, not just in the army, but I see so much that I'm sure you'd agree as well, Paul, in the vet profession, you go into the vet world and you feel like you have to know absolutely everything. And having that realization that, you know what, nobody knows everything, because if you're constantly striving to hold yourself to that level that you know everything, it's exhausting, isn't it? Like how, how could anybody know everything? Like there'd be no fun left if you knew everything. Oh, I already know all of that. Why, well, why carry on? But yeah, I think that's a, a really powerful point. Definitely that if we take that pressure off that quite often was given to us and we had no choice in that pressure over what success actually is, what a failure actually means. And I was really interested in the last podcast about all the talks over failure there because pulling them up and seeing them in a different way and seeing what success is in a different way and rewriting those rules, like you say, Tim, that success was actually going out, doing the best that you could and continually improving rather than being perfect from the start. It makes it so much easier to move forward because you're not just constantly trying to put the accelerator on with a handbrake on, listening to that, that imposter gremlin, are you? It was when it was, and it took me probably over a decade to realize that other people had imposter syndrome. And that was one of the things that made the biggest impact. And I think that's probably why um, you, your talks are so powerful and so successful is because people suddenly go, that's the light bulb moment. Oh, it's not just me. And but when I finally realized that, it just took a lot of pressure off because I was always, and all of us on this call, I'm sure most people listening, you're always looking at someone who's better than you and going, I, I just want to be like them. I, I wonder why, how are they so successful? Why are they so cool? Why are they so, uh, you know, making life so, so awesome? Why can't yeah. I be like that? Um, I'm going to get found out. Eventually, someone's going to turn up and go, ha ha, no, turned out you didn't pass your vet degree or uh, it turns out we've made a mistake you're not as good as as everyone thinks you are and but then you suddenly realize that other people are looking up to you and wow and and that just relieves that pressure but like I say it just took well over a decade before I was able to be kind to myself. Well, I think the irony of it now, Paul, I think we were talking about when we had Ed Drake on, the irony yeah. of it now is I'm pretty comfortable. I, I prefer to be the weakest member of any team that, that we're on. You know, I think you've sort of almost 180 degrees in the wrong way. I don't ever want to be the strongest member of a team I'm on because, because therefore, by definition, I'm limiting the team. And, you know, I'm sort of fairly comfortable to, to be surrounded by people sort of better than me. But I guess that takes, you know, it takes a lot of confidence. And as you said, I'm now 45, not 25, you know, and it's, it's taken that period of time to sort of, I don't know, build that, build that confidence around it. It also actually takes, um, we always, you know, we have our favourite phrase, don't we? That if you have to say that your door is always open, you know, then it isn't simple as that. Um, you know, if you have to explain it, then it wasn't, it's, it's very simple. Um, but actually it requires, it takes quite strong leadership as well, doesn't it? To allow people to make mistakes and allow people to learn from it. Um, yeah. Because it, because it is, it is a perception of giving up control, isn't it? Which we don't like very much to as human beings. Yeah, that's right. And I think a huge part of leadership is leading by example as well, isn't it? Of saying, you know what, I failed at this and this is what I did about it and it was okay. Or sometimes I'll have these doubts that pop in because I think one of the biggest illusions is thinking that all the people that we aspire to be have it all sorted out. And until those people are having the conversations and saying, 
I sometimes still have these doubts or sometimes I fail and that's okay. There are things that we can do that I make mistakes, but it doesn't make me a mistake. It's a behavior, not an identity. Then that really does help open those conversations to the people that look up to them. Because like you just said, Paul there, my biggest illusion was thinking that I was the only person that ever felt that way. And literally, I won't go too far into my story, but at the point of being a vet that was maybe three or four years out, had already done her certificate, which was a very early time to do it, sitting crying when I was on call thinking, why can I never accept what everybody else is telling me is true? Why can't I see it? There must be something really wrong with me. It was only through my own journey that I started to realize that I wasn't the only one. And it wasn't just vets, it was the whole world. And it was people that are like global megastars. It was the people that are up there in roles of presidencies and the highest that people would aspire essentially to be, as it were, if that's how we mark success, still felt the same way. And that was a huge eye-opener to me to say, you know what, pressure off, everybody doubts themselves at some point. Let's use that as a little trigger to say, maybe I'm growing, maybe I'm stretching my comfort zones, maybe I'm doing something a little bit bigger and that's just pushing against some of those beliefs that I've had. And these are the things you can do to move forward. I think a lot of it, Katie, we, Paul and I often talk about is covering each other's blind spots. And I, and, I, and I think one of the biggest things for me, and that's where I get confidence from Paul and Cedric and Dave, out, you know, our other directors and stuff, is that, that there came a moment when I realised I didn't have to be good at everything. So, you know, there's maybe one or two things that that I am good at and, and they're things that have perhaps caused me problems. I think a bit differently. I look at problems a different way perhaps to other people do, but they're things that have been quite successful for us during this lockdown period. There's other things I'm absolutely terrible at that I'd have hidden and run away from and previously, but Paul is really, really good at, or Cedric is really, really good at, or Dave is really, really good at. So as a team, we work better together. And for me, that's quite a, that's quite a key moment to go, well, actually this bit here, it turns out I am quite good at and I'll, and I'll do that but I don't need to be good at this, this, and this as well, because I am contributing all, all bit differently. And for me, that was quite a key, that was quite a key sort of moment in our development, Paul, I think probably. And you know what, I think the really incredible part of that as well is fitting in with the imposter syndrome topic too. In, it was in the nineties, I think, but Valerie Young, she put out that there are five different types of imposter syndrome. And I really don't zone into these too much because I feel like a lot of the time people try and adopt them as labels. And if you give someone a character, they either live up or live down to it. So I don't want to say this is the type of imposter syndrome you have and it becomes self-fulfilling. But one of those is the super person who feels like they have to do every role perfectly and handle anything that's thrown of them. And I think you're absolutely right there, Tim, that sometimes we have to step back and say, how much further would I get with my strengths if I put all my energy into what I'm good at? and actually acknowledged, you know what, it doesn't matter if I'm not good at these things because they're good and we're a team and we go further if we go together rather than feeling like we've got to try and do everything because that is exhausting, isn't it? It is, and, and very hard for new leaders to do. I think it becomes easier, as I think we've all said, it becomes easier with experience and with, uh, you know, as, as you've been doing it for longer, you're like, okay, I, perhaps I don't need to. And wouldn't it be great if we could learn, <laughs> learn from someone else's mistakes rather than having to go through this and make our own mistakes uh, along the way and learn. I, Paul, I think it's where I say, Paul, it's interesting, is the lessons are all around us, aren't they? Um, you, you know, I, I think it's, um, uh, I think it was Stanford University and they come up with a theory uh, and it basically says like, ignore your weaknesses almost. 
So, so in other words, build your strengths rather rather than shore up your weaknesses. Now, accepting the fact that there has to be a threshold. If you say, I mean, we you know there are certain skills we all need to be good at in life, frankly. Um, but actually, take that aside. If you look at sport, I mean, I'm no, I'm certainly you know not a football fan. I know the first thing about it, to be honest with you. But you, my understanding is, yeah, you, know, you don't ask the striker to play in goal. You don't expect the goalkeeper to learn to, to to put the ball in the back of the net because there's no need. And they're never going to they're never going to do that. Yeah, the same in rugby. You, know, you don't ask the scrum half to play hooker because it's not going to work. So therefore, you don't do that. And yet, it's interesting that in business we have this perception that we all have to be all things to all people. And uh, and yet, no, nowhere else do you do that. Um, even the military, we, yeah, we don't we don't ask a sniper to be a paramedic or vice versa. You know, it, it, we don't expect the helicopter pilot to be an infantier. Yeah, you know, it's just interesting, isn't it? And you know what? It's so true too, isn't it? Because then we end up with this internal pressure that we feel like success is to be able to do all of these roles on our own with no help and yet why would we if you've got a brilliant goalkeeper say oh well everybody thinks I should be a striker so I'm going to avoid being a goalkeeper for now because I've got to be good at that as well when actually they could have been putting all their energy like you say into that role that they are very good at and just stripping back some of those those beliefs where that little imposter gremlin comes along and says well you should really be doing this and you're not very good at that so you need to improve on it and saying, you know what, actually, it takes quite a lot of strength to put your hands up and say, I'm not too good at that, but that doesn't make me unvaluable. My value is actually in this, and I'm going to align with it and go and do it and enjoy it and focus on that strength, definitely. I mean, our little team, Cedric, who's our chief financial officer, I mean, he'd go mental if I suggested that I looked after the numbers one month. Paul, can you only imagine? <laughs> can you only imagine the chaos that that would create? <laughs> And it comes down to like, you can do anything, but you can't do everything, doesn't it? And so often I know with my own experience of imposter syndrome, I really tried to spread myself very thinly, you know, to be good at absolutely everything. And when they started doing a lot of the work, when they first documented imposter syndrome in the seventies, they said that quite often a lot of it was driven by, well, there were a lot of different sort of inputs to it, but one of them was the people that were labeled as being a genius child or being the smart one or the clever one. And then what ends up is we have this belief that everything that we do should come easily and should come quickly and that we should be naturally brilliant at anything that's thrown at us. And that then gets transposed into anything that we do in life that you feel like if you're not immediately very, very good at something, then somebody's going to find out that you're not actually this genius anymore. And I resonated a lot with that. It's kind of the people that get those stories of, oh, you were reading before everybody else and you were always the smartest one in the class. And what we forget to mention in that is the work that goes into it behind I'm, it. And again, I'm very, very mindset. fortunate, Katie. I've never been any of those things. I've been <laughs> I've been fundamentally average and, and at the back pretty much my entire life. So I'm, actually, so I'm actually quite comfortable with that, really. But it just means I don't quit. I've never quit because because actually I've always had to just keep jogging along. So I'm, I'm quite fortunate in that respect, really. I've never been actually talented. I think I don't think anyone's ever used that word of me in the same sentence. <laughs> You're very modest, Tim, very modest. And there's, a, there's a great quote, I think, that, that sort of pulls it together, I suppose, of this, which is, it takes years and years of effort to achieve overnight success, which I think was quite a nice way of sort of looking at it and going, all these people who suddenly appear and it's all been brilliant and it's absolutely been perfect, actually it's been years and years of effort and hard work and failure and mistakes all along the way uh, when you really drill into it and find yeah. out what. Well, I think it was, um, I quite like Matthew Saeed's got a concept, hasn't he? Which is that he kind of says, 
I'm, pr I'm probably going to get in all sorts of trouble for misquoting him, but, but fundamentally he says that talent doesn't really exist, but it's much more comfortable to talk about talent. So if, if, if Paul is significantly better than me at something, it would... Uh, a, a wrong example, Katie, for example. <laughs> Katie is much better at me than something. <laughs> uh, but actually, it's it's much more comfortable to say that Katie is talented than Katie has practiced or trained or studied much longer and harder than I have. So there's quite a lot that says this this sort of concept of talent is almost the rest of us going, oh, mm, I didn't do quite that much really, and you know. And in fact, it ties back to our whole because I can purpose ball, doesn't it really? Which is actually you can, but you've got to do it and there'll be dark days. And we've been talking to schools loads recently. And one of the questions we were talking about Everest and stuff. And, and one of the questions that we're always getting asked is, but did you never want to quit? And I said, yeah, I want to quit every day. Like, without every week, without fail. I question myself. I question what I'm doing. I question whether we've got this right. What makes us extraordinary is we don't quit. Um, you, you know, there's almost something wrong with you if, if you don't doubt yourself, if that makes sense. And, it, and it's much more comfortable to say, oh, well, actually, Katie's just talented rather than Katie's worked really hard to get this done. Yeah. And there's there's two things I'd say on that. The first one is I think quite often we forget about cause and effect that actually right in the beginning, we put in loads of effort for things and we don't see much effect or much outcome from it. So we quickly then say, well, I've worked really hard at this and nothing's come of it. And then we'll give up. Whereas actually... As time goes on, you forget all of that mountain of work that you stood on and that whole journey that you've had up until that point and every day when you showed up and done it. And we do that almost to ourselves sometimes as well. I don't know how that happened. And that adds into imposter syndrome. And the second thing I say when I was listening to both of your podcasts as well recently, I thought I absolutely love the title that it's called Because I Can rather than because I should or because I must or because I have to or because everybody else says I should do it is because I can do it. And I quite like that decision of saying, what is my why? Why am I actually doing this? And just always tuning into that because if you then get waved off that path to because everybody else thinks I should do it, then you're doing it for the wrong reasons. And then you don't enjoy that journey. And then you don't handle the setbacks in the same way because those setbacks then look like a, a bruise on your character or like actually oh I'm not doing it right because I'm not good enough at it instead you say well actually I still want to go there for these reasons and maybe I just need to snake a different path around this obstacle and get someone to help me over it and tune in into that why because you because you can because it's a choice because you're allowed yeah, exactly. to choose what you do exactly perfect I don't think we could put that any better ourselves Paul could we at that point so Katie thank you very much for that very nice to see you and um <laughs> Guys, thanks very much for listening in. We'll hear you again soon. Please remember that if you've enjoyed the podcast and our guests like Katie this week very kindly give up their time for nothing. So if you do, please comment, please like, please tick share. It helps us get the ratings and hopefully maybe a few other people can enjoy some of the insights that us and our guests have got to put together. So please do that. Thank you very much, guys.